Hello and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault. This is episode. What episode number is this? I think this is 34 something, something like that. Um, I'm talking again with my friend Garrett Saul. We're continuing our, our conversation from last time when we started the conversation on what is the nature of hell? What is it like? What does the Bible say about hell? We're going through this book, The Four Views on Hell, which is put out by Zondervan a couple years ago. Um, in the previous one, we did ECT, Eternal Conscious Torment. And in this one, we're discussing annihilationism, which is the idea that after you die, if you are not saved by Christ, you suffer for a period of time, and then you are annihilated. You cease to exist. There is absolutely no, nothing left of you um, after your justice or your punishment is carried out. So that's the basic idea of annihil- annihilationism, and that's what we're discussing today. Hopefully you'll be able to follow along and we don't refer to too many things that are outside of, you know, the, the common vernacular. But yeah, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Garrett Saul on Annihilationism. Yeah, so we can dive in. Um, it's kind of, I've been thinking about basically death all day because tomorrow I'm doing my first funeral. Have you done any funerals yet? Yep, yeah. Uh, three months into my charge here, uh, a teacher who taught at the school for about three decades who went to the congregation died of cancer. And I was able to visit her a few times before that happened. But um, yeah, like hundreds of people showed up to her funeral. I mean, it was it was just packed out. So Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow will be my first one. So I'm like nervous and honored and a little excited, but you know, like not, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Um, so I'm the chaplain at a nursing home. I don't know if you knew that. And, uh, one of the guys at the nursing home really likes me and my messages. And he said he wanted me to do his funeral, but then he died pretty suddenly. Like it was pretty unexpected. He wasn't sick or anything. He just rolled out of bed. So, <clears throat> but fortunately, he was a really strong believer, a real faithful guy, and a good, real good guy. So, I think that'll make it easier. But, Sweet. Yeah. Do you do that full-time? No, that's just part-time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, do you work elsewhere? I um, am in seminary, but not this semester, because I am couldn't afford it, and I've been looking for jobs, and... Um, I teach rock climbing and what's the one I forget. I drive people to the hospital sometimes to make their appointments like disabled people. Um, but just this morning I got hired as a high school history teacher. It's basically a long-term substitute till the end of the school year. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. So a bunch of random stuff going on. Plus the writing (laughs) brings in some passive income, but you know. Sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So all over the place, really. It is what it is right now. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, we can, we can dive in. Um, yeah, I don't have the, the page number cause I'm using a, a, a Kendall here, but, um, okay. Uh, one <laughs> quote near the beginning, it says, 
uh, for, for Stackhouse's view. In the following presentation, I shall outline defend the view, sometimes called annihilationism or conditional immortality, but what is better termed uh, terminal punishment. And he gives that definition. The view that hell is the situation in which those who do not avail themselves of the atonement made by Jesus in his suffering and death must make their own atonement by suffering and then death, separated from the sustaining life of God and thus disappearing from the cosmos. I think that is a really good definition of that view and also just compelling already, even mm -hmm. without going into his main arguments. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the first thing I, I underlined in this, um, just because it's like it, he brings, for me, he brings in the cross right away mm -hmm. and he's trying to understand his position from the crucifixion of Jesus, which to me, that is the starting point of Christian theology. Whereas right. um, Burke, he just kind of like proof text where this is seen in the Bible. And he's like, but Stackhouse on the other hand is like, let me give you my like theological central starting point. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that that's just really compelling already um, because Jesus did. He, I mean, right. He took the wrath of God in reformed theology as, as God, you know, you know, I'm, you know, the wrath of God is satisfied. You know, that's all in Christ alone. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's true. And so it's like, okay, well, if people are going to be experiencing, you know, God's wrath forever in hell. It's like, I mean, in Revelation, you can see they're experiencing the wrath of the Lamb. Um, and so more has to, for me, has to kind of think about that some more. But already, I think he has a very good starting point. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. And the point about um, suffering and then death, separated from the sustaining life of God, thus disappearing from the cosmos. I think that's. I've had a couple conversations about this this past week. I had one really. On Facebook. Yeah. So, I, I, I didn't read the article that you uh, wrote, but I, I did read through the comments. So. <laughs> yeah, Facebook comments are where the best theology takes place. Certainly. <laughs> That's only true in the arena of dialogue. Um, <clears throat> they actually care. Most of the time. Yeah, and they're cordial. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, just the uh, I was talking to my dad about it, and you and I mentioned this last time, I think, but how, like, the fact that something exists is better than nothing existing. And I looked around for, like, more philosophical backing on that, and I couldn't really find specifically that which I was looking for um, I found some articles on nothingness which I read and realized how hard that is to even conceptualize con yeah conceptualize to think about like nothingness like you almost can't think about that and like is that a fitting punishment for the sins that you've done you know like becoming nothingness because then you wouldn't be aware that you're nothingness you just wouldn't be but at the same time um, <clears throat> we often talk about how like the people quote unquote in hell or whatever are separated from God's presence. And it's like, well, how can there be something outside of God's presence if we claim that he's omnipresent? And that kind of leaves the two options of either they're not outside God's presence, they're suffering his wrath or they are outside of his presence and therefore can't exist. You know what I mean? Like those seem yeah, to be the two yeah. options to me. And the fact, too, specifically, the sustaining life of God. I mean, only God has life in himself. I mean, 
period. Mm-hmm. That even in the hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, like that hymn specifically talks about how, you know, yeah, in you sustains all life. I mean, in him we live and move and have our being. Mm-hmm. And so for those who are to participate in God's coming kingdom, new heavens and new earth, it's like, okay, I think you're right in saying that only does leave those two options of either, you know, you're going to be suffering the wrath of, of God <coughs> or you are going to, you know, go out of existence as you're no longer being sustained by God's life because you're outside of Christ, who is our life. Even Paul says that, Christ, who is our life, when he appears. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're um, conceptualizing things more so, and I think Stackhouse points this out in his response to Burke, more deductively, you know, if we sin infinitely against an infinite God, then our punishment, you know, has to be, you know, proportionate to the infinite God that we've, you know, offended. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, and everyone's trying to do justice to the Bible, but I think as we're finding out, methodologies are different in how we go about interpreting you know, can we just like proof text stuff and understand eternal in the way that we do? Like I was reading through your Facebook comments um, that people are posting, or is it like, do we have to try to see like the schema of scripture? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think Zach House does a better job of, I haven't read the universalist re- uh, response or, or purgatory chapters yet either, but I think Zach House does a good job defending the schema of scripture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of the sense I've been getting, um, from Preston Sprinkle's podcast in which he defended the annihilationist view. And then from this book, it seems like the annihilationist folks are looking at the whole Bible, like you said, and trying to come up with the consistent view for the fate of the wicked rather than just kind of myopically proof texting. Because I think if you go the proof texting route, you'll find two or three verse uh, passages that are convincing for the ECT, eternal conscious mm-hmm. torment. Yep. You'll find two or three that are convincing, but just because you found two or three texts that are convincing, does that mean that's what the entire Bible is saying? Be- because just because you have those two or three, that's not to say that there's a couple dozen in defense of annihilation. Which or, to, <clears throat> or being able to see like the trajectory either. It's like, yeah. oh, hey, look, you know, Abraham had multiple wives and he's the father <coughs> of faith. So that sets the trajectory for polygamy. Hey! Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, one of the comment threads on my post today, that's exactly what they were doing. They were hung up on Matthew 25 which um, is when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats and mm-hmm. the uh, and some and the goats will be sent off in verse 46, 46 to yeah. eternal punishment and and I was like yeah that doesn't really disagree with the uh, the thesis because what is the punishment death how long does death last eternally <laughs> so like it doesn't really contradict it in that sense and I was like, if you really wanted to um, push back on this, you should have used Revelation 14. <laughs> I just like told them what verse they should have used. Because, again, like if you're going to just pick and choose a couple verses versus the entire breadth of Scripture, that's <clears throat> I don't think that's the best way to do theology. Because, like you said, you could literally build a defense for almost anything going that route. So, 
Right. And <clears throat> like it comes to from, I mean, I think evangelicalism generally has operated in the hermeneutic of proof text, kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses, you mm-hmm. know, to build like theology. And I mean, and we see this in systematic theologies, you know, they just take, you know, scriptures and, you know, they push it together and, you know, they're helpful for categorizing things like that. I mean, goodness, I'm reading through John Calvin's Institutes, you know, this year. Um, and it's, it's great. I like systematic theologies, but I think what we're anemic at and how this could help the conversation on hell is seeing the story of scripture and just reading the Bible and like reading it in huge chunks and just, just reading it and mm-hmm. being immersed in the story and seeing ourselves as storied beings kind of going the James K. Smith route, um, instead of like brains in a vat, primarily understanding things through, you know, didactic principles, mm-hmm. kind of moving from a Kantian framework to a more, you know, storied framework. Not sure, you know, what philosopher would match that. Um, Augustine, maybe? I mean, yeah, perhaps. Um, but yeah, just like, what is, what is the story? What is the trajectory? What is the scope? And what is the narrative of the entire canon? And then from there, once we kind of get our groundings in the story of Scripture, I mean, Eugene Peterson was huge on this. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I'm, I'm reading as many of his books as I can because I think he's a great pastor. And, um, and this is something that I've been trying to do in my own spiritual life, like trying to almost you know, every day except Sundays um, and sometimes Saturdays, depending on what we do as a family. But, you know, I read 10 chapters of Scripture a day, but from different sections of Scripture. So, like, I have 10 different lists from, you know, the, the Pentateuch, historical books, uh, you know, Job's, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, part of Paul's letters. I mean, just, you know, everything from each of those sections. And then they just kind of rotate and switch out. And I'm finding that my immersion in the story of Scripture is just helping me be a better preacher, interpreter of Scripture. Uh, but I feel like evangelicals often like to pick out like the Bible is like it's kind of like you know God is speaking in my ear through this word to you right now rather than like let's take a step back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Stackhouse does a good job of taking a step back and saying the trajectory of of Scripture and and defending his view and you know Bert kind of takes him to task in his you know response because of that. But <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> I honestly didn't think. Was Burke the first one? Um, I think so. Hold on a second. Uh, yeah, he is. I honestly didn't think his response was that convincing because um, he didn't... I guess he kind of also, in the same way he wrote his chapter, he kind of myopically responded to this one by saying, like, like here's a couple little nitpicky places where I disagree with you, rather than, like... I don't know, I just didn't feel like it was he wrote the most convincing response. Maybe that's because I'm personally starting to lean toward annihilationism. Personally, I don't know if this is from the book or just from me, but the thing I've thought about, I think I mentioned this in my article too, is like a lot of people talk about how annihilation seems to diminish God's justice and wrath. And I think that people who have that view kind of don't fully capture the annihilation view, which is that there is a period of punishment and suffering before the annihilation happens. And I think 
<clears throat> with that added in creates the most just presentation I've ever seen. Um, so for example, say you have like this teenage kid, he's 16 years old in the hood. He doesn't have a father. His dad's in prison. All he knows is like gang life, violence, drugs. His mom is like abusive and his pastor abused him. You know, like, so what are the chances that somebody like that would become a Christian? And then say when he's 16, he gets shot in a gang fight and dies. Now, does that kid deserve the exact same punishment as Hitler or Mussolini who wiped out 10 million people, 6 million people? Well, of course, because each sin is an infinite sin against an infinite God. And so everyone's deserving of infinite punishment. Yeah, I mean, that's the... Well, I want to get to that in a second, too. but Because um, the, th- the thought is that with that with the the framework of annihilation, it's like, well, this kid could be tortured for three years and then like annihilated. Whereas Hitler is tortured for like a million years and then annihilated. you know, so it like kind of creates that the punishment fits the crime type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I was thinking too is that, and this is where we get into that philosophical question of the infinite God versus the fi- finite sin. Um, <clears throat> You know, pre, what's his name, Hammurabi, it's like if someone chops off your finger, you go and you kill their entire family. <clears throat> so like, yeah, you, you could do that. Yeah, or like someone. Like, po- like uh, a, a biblical example of what you're saying. I just read this in Genesis a few days ago. Is when um, uh, I forget his name, but I think an Amorite rapes uh, Dinah the sister of the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, Simeon and Levi. They say, all right, you can have Dinah. You just have to circumcise everyone in your in your town. They're like, yeah, no problem. And then they go in and then kill everyone in the town for raping Dinah. It's like, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, is that before or after the law is given to Moses? Before. It's in Genesis. Yeah. Yeah, so that my point is, like before Moses and Hammurabi, Hammurabi was like 300 years before him, but Hammurabi is the first place that you see an eye for an eye. You know, if someone takes your eye, you don't get to kill their whole family. You just get to take their eye out, you know? So it, it limits the retribution you can have. And then obviously Moses um, has similar laws in the Torah. Um, it's like, this is what justice looks like. It's not like, you know, you know like I said, you chop off my finger, I chop off your finger. It's not, you know, way overdue the uh, the vengeance. And yet, we think of God, if you have an eternal conscious torment view of hell, that's exactly the view that you're painting on him. It's like, I've committed 80 years of sins against God, and yet I'll be punished for eternity. You know, like it seems like God's going against the very principle of the law that he gave to Moses, right? Um, Which then begs that question, is it an infinite sin against God? Or did he create us finite with finite limitations and we don't actually harm God himself the same way you do in the baby illustration, ripping the legs off the baby. Um, But you, you know, so that's kind of more of a philosophical question, right? Like, are those sins finite? Say you commit 80,000 sins in your lifetime. Are they worthy of 80,000 punishments and then you're done? Or is it truly 
against God himself. Because even in Psalm 51, David says, against you and you alone. Right. So it's like every sin against a human is a sin against God. And God still doesn't demand death for every single sin, meaning that there is some sort of limitation to the punishment for the sins we commit. And I believe that, uh, you know, it says, man, I forget if it's an Exodus or Moses or it's a Psalm where it says, you know, there's praising God who doesn't punish us according to our sins or what they deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that is also interesting as well. Um, I wonder if that were, if there's, if we need to pay more attention to when it's talking about in this life or in the afterlife too. Um, you know, because there's that thought in the ancient mind as well. And something that just came into my mind too, it's like, you know, Jesus was only hung on the cross for three hours before he died. It's like, was three hours on the cross really sufficient to attend, to atone for the sins of the whole world? I mean, given it's it's God, right, yeah. in the flesh. Um, but e- even that had a, a limited amount of, you know, suffering for Jesus. I mean, his sufferings extend, of course, if you count his death and burial. Um, well, well, and in second Peter, he descended to the depths you yeah. know, to preach to the spirits held in prison. So whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's not like he went up to heaven and hung out for a couple hours and then came back down. I think right. he was uncomfortable <laughs> to say the least during that time he was dead. Right. So, yeah. So which, which, which direction would you say you're leaning right now? Well, I am I am leaning more annihilationist because I think it does do you know it does do justice well maybe not justice but I think it makes sense of biblical text coming at it from just taking the text as it is in relation to how death is talked about in scripture I mean like Old Testament's all about Sheol mm-hmm. you know which is kind of like this insubstantial nether gloom type, you know, place where people thought that they would go. And, um, it's, where like, do you see that? Cause I, I understood Sheol as being mainly just referring to <clears throat> the grave or death itself. Well, yeah, that's kind of where <coughs> I'm going. I mean, it's a place where it's, you just, or it's just insubstantial, you know, cause, cause you're dead. Um, so, but, and just, thinking about how ancient Israel understood death and how as Israelites, you know, that was kind of transformed in the pharisaical movement of, you know, believing the resurrection where the Sadducees, you know, they, they didn't. Um, so even then in like second temple Judaism, that's there. And then Paul being a Pharisee and how Jesus re, you know, reimagines, reinterprets, redefines, recreates, you know, life as well. But yeah, I am leaning more towards just, from a purely understanding scripture, more annihilationism, but mm-hmm. confessionally, <clears throat> the denomination I'm a part of, I think, only holds to ECT, as far as I know. Okay. Uh, as it's in our catechism and the three forms of unity, which are the Belgian Confession, Cans of Dort, and the Hyper Catechism, uh, and we don't have a position statement. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about writing an overture to Synod, which is the representation of all the churches in our denomination that meets once a year for about two weeks in June, um, writing an overture asking, is like annihilationism an acceptable biblical, you know, view 
point for CRC pastors to hold and maybe broaden that. And if it can't be decided there, then ask if a study committee will be put together. Um, mm-hmm. to, yeah, that'd to be cool. That. Because, <clears throat> because I, think, I think the view can still be scriptural, remain within orthodoxy, although it's you know newer, and so people are you know afraid of newer things. I mean, just like you know uh, homosexual marriage. It's it's all in the Bible. It's okay. You know that's a newer thing, and people are afraid of. And uh, I'm not afraid of it. I just think it's wrong and not in scripture. Um, yeah, I am leaning towards that way, but I'm still doing a lot of thinking and really want to engage with the scriptures and the original languages mm-hmm. uh, because. You know, if, if I say something like that, uh, people will go crazy. So, Yeah, and which denomination are you with? Uh, Christian Reformed Church. Okay. So it's a split of the Reformed Church in America. Uh, and the RCA, Reformed Church in America, has been around since like the 1600s in America. Okay. And so. did the other branch go more like mainline liberal theology, or what happened? The RCA went more mainline liberal okay. and the CRC split and the CRC is considered by some to be conservative and by some to be liberal because it does a good job walking the middle line. Uh, but there's a spectrum of flexibility and diversity within the, within the denomination. Like the denomination allows women to be ordained as pastors and serve as elders, but then it's up to each individual individual church, whether or not they want to do that. Um, so like the church that I'm a part of doesn't even have women deacons. Oh, wow. Um, whereas the church that Andrea served at, uh, they have a, a female pastor, uh, female elders, you know, but they also have a male pastor, there's co-pastors, mm-hmm. the male elders. I mean, so they're all, they're all in, but it's a spectrum within the, within the denomination. But some people saw that even that was too liberal. <clears throat> so they split off and started the United Reformed Church, URC. So, Wow. Yeah, it's, it's bonkers. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear what the response is to you writing that piece. <clears throat> I also wanted to read this one section from Robin Perry's response. I found out Robin is a dude, <laughs> okay, not yeah. a girl. Um, you can never tell with a name like Robin. I know. Um, I guess. Jordan. Yeah. There aren't that many guys that I know named Robin aside from the superhero, so. And Robin Williams. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But honestly, the sense I got from Robin's response, I was like, this guy seems the nicest out of all of them. And he's the universalist. So maybe there's something to that. (laughs) You know, when you believe everybody's going to be saved, you're nicer. No need to be mean to people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everyone is loved by God. Therefore, you know, if only everyone else took that to heart as well. And I don't have to defend anything, because who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this. Something we mentioned in the last time is like, what's the point of doing evangelism if everyone gets saved in the end? And I was thinking, like, at the very least, according to that view, and we haven't read the chapter yet, but um, if I was to save you from 10,000 years of suffering, wouldn't that be a nice thing for you? Like, if I could take you out of 10,000 years of suffering and you just kind of shortcut to heaven as opposed to, because 10,000 years is a long time to suffer, you know, or any kind of suffering or punishment. So I guess that would be the one thing that would be avoided. However, your motivation would still be lower than 
if hell is a permanent state. Right. I mean, that's what I was going to say. I mean, uh, and it downplays the effects of sin on a person to do evangelism uh, and share the and share the gospel because we're selfish. Yeah, that's what we talked about. But like, I mean, Jesus uses hyperbole. Like, you should hate your family and follow me. <laughs> you know, like in in comparison. Um, in comparison to not knowing Jesus, how painful will that be for that person for X amount of years that we really should try to get them to know Jesus as soon as possible? You know, I don't know if that alone is a strong enough argument, but that I would mean, probably be their motivation for evangelism. All right. But here, but that hearing me, I'm like, okay, you know, yeah, I guess, but you know, who cares? Because the end, the end, they're all going to know Jesus. The end yeah. Will suffer, but, you know, they'll make it like, I'm not going to waste my time if I know that like everything is going to be like okay again for everybody apart from anything that I do as God's agent. I'm just going to spend time with my family, read my right. book of my kids, go on vacation, whatever. You know? Right. But I also it, wonder. Be responsible. Yeah. I think um, the other thing that I've realized the past couple months studying this and doing similar things is that Jesus and the Bible put way more emphasis on how we live in this life than many evangelical Christians do. You know, if you can relegate everything to the afterlife, you can evangelize, sure, but you can still kind of live however you want without sacrificing that much because it's like, oh, God will kind of write the scales in the end. Therefore, I don't really need to sacrifice. I'll, I'll give my 10%, sure, but like, you know, like it kind of downplays a lot of evangelical theology, I feel like, downplays our responsibility for this life, for caring for the poor, for justice, for... In the common sphere of, like, lay people practice understanding. Yeah, I, yeah, I just say the majority, like, like how many megachurch pastors are you going to hear? I mean, I, I don't mean, know. Preach moralistic therapeutic deism? All of them. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's for real, though. That's just um, me being cynical. I'm sorry. That's not all of them. No, I'm the same way. There's there's two meg, two real major mega churches here in Denver. One of them is pretty legit. The other is the very stereotypical celebrity, like money grabby mega church with multi campuses and rock concert. It drives me nuts, man. Like, makes me so mad. Um, I, I have a friend who works for them, and he was like, "Dude, the other day I had to go. We had a guest speaker come." And someone was like, hey, go get this guy a $1,000 gift card to Restoration Hardware. And he's like, why? And he's like, oh, we have to give him a tip. I was like, a $1,000 gift card is the tip for what this guy's getting for speaking here? He's some celebrity, pastor, preacher guy. I was like, what the heck? Like, what is this church? You know? It's like a... a I'm not a church, but... The- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a... If Jesus was there, he'd be turning over everyone's credit cards. Yeah. <laughs> just going... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, when he told me that, it made me so mad. I was like... You know, like, it kind of makes preachers and sneakers, you know, that you're familiar with that story? I, I, I'm not familiar with the story. You know what preachers and sneakers is? Oh, really? No. Oh, man. See, being in the country, I kind of live under a rock. Uh, I just, you know, read my Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament, <laughs> yeah. obscure old dead, dead books, hang out with my kids, visit with my flock, 
and then preach on Sunday. So it must I don't be really nice. Um, yeah, I mean, the world could be, you know, going to shit, and I'll be like, you know, living it up. And by yeah. Up, I mean, being with my family. But um, <laughs> that must yeah, be nice. I, yeah, it is. Well, basically, um, but, it was this. It was this yeah. Instagram account that over the course of like two or three weeks after it started, it blew up to like a hundred thousand followers out of nowhere. Okay. And all he did was he had a picture of, it was just like two pictures on the one's half. Um, it had a preacher and it said like, so-and-so from this church, like Chad Veach from what's his church, Zoe church in LA. And then on the other half of the picture, it would just have like his shoes and how much they cost or his jacket and how much it costs. And some of them were $6,000 outfits. I think maybe even more than that. If you added the whole outfit together, it was like, these shoes are $5,000. That's all it did. He didn't say anything positive or negative. He kind of made funny comments like, like Chad Veach rolling in the drip in the Nike, you know, free, whatever. Um, he didn't say positive or negative. He just kind of put it out there and the comments blew up. Everyone blew it up to over a hundred thousand followers. And then uh, some of the celebrity pastors started responding and some of them were upset. Some of them were like, yeah, this is actually kind of humbling, you know, but like basically that's literally all it was, but it blew up and everyone, it made me furious. Cause I was like, this pastor is supposed to be representing Jesus and he's actually representing, what is it, Mammon? You know, like yeah. the like, just con- consume everything, most expensive everything I can get. And some of the pastors were like, "Yeah, these are all just gifts. Like people have given these to me." And it's like, you know, whatever. Doesn't mean you need to wear them. You can say thank you, <laughs> and then sell them and give the money to the poor. I don't know. Yeah, and then the you know, but then there's people on the other side too. They're like. If they got, if you got that gift, you wouldn't sell it. You'd wear it, you know. And it's like, just because they're pastors doesn't mean it was a huge debate. And uh, anyway, that's kind of off topic. But the the one church here in Denver is basically that type of church, and then the other one is like it's big, but it's much more legit, Bible based. Actually, funny story. I got coffee with one of the pastors of the uh, the lesser sound church found out not only did he not go to seminary he didn't go to college <laughs> he has a high school diploma and he's a, pa- a pastor you had coffee with yeah and he's pastoring okay. nine thousand people so i was like yeah i mean he's a nice guy pretty humble like good guy but <laughs> i don't know anyway it's wild yeah that's my rant I, I wonder how much time in hell he'll spend. <laughs> Hopefully none. Sorry, again, again, my, my cynical side coming out. But uh, no, I know he he honestly is a good guy. I just don't know if he should be teaching nine thousand people about the Bible. So there you go. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, where are we? Oh, I was going to read this passage from Robin Perry's response, the Universalist response. Okay. Um, where he said, Annihilationists raise the objection against eternal torment that, on the traditional view, evil is never removed from creation, but is simply contained in an everlasting stasis chamber. Indeed, better to be 
Better to be done with sin and banish it from creation. Annihilationism removes that problem with the guillotine. There are no sinners in the new creation. God is all in all. This was funny. The problem is that God's answer to evil here is not a gospel solution, i.e. to eradicate the sin from the sinners, but a terminator solution to eradicate the sinners themselves. This is a drastic way of winning creation, like winning all the votes in an election by killing those who would have voted differently. (laughs) Hypothetically, God could annihilate the vast majority of human beings and then claim to have won a glorious triumph in a universe filled with creatures that love him. But is this not a Pyrrhic victory? The cost of winning was so very high. So, I mean, obviously he's pushing toward a universalist view, but I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. It's like, yes, at the end of the day, God has won over evil, by annihilating anyone who didn't convert to his way of, or to him, you know? Um, so I thought that was yeah. an interesting point. It may be a little bit out of, out of context and out of, um, maybe not taking the whole biblical scope into account. Yeah, um, especially when Jesus says, hey, the path to destruction is wide and the path to life is few or narrow and few will find it and various other you know, it just seems like his own conjecture. It's like, mm-hmm. you're forgetting what Jesus said, like those who don't believe in, you know, the one who sent me, the wrath of God remains upon them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it just, yeah. I mean, in T.F. Torrance, he talks about too, like when you hear the gospel, he says very provocatively, if you're damned, you're damned by the gospel. Mm. Because when, you, you know, the good news is, you know, as, as Paul says, you know, for those who are, you know, being saved, it is a beautiful aroma. But for those who are going to death, it is, you know, the, a stench. Uh, mm. But it's still the gospel. It's just, yeah. It's the same word. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, I think that is just a, a universalist conjecture. I mean, when I read that, I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see where you're coming from, but I don't think it's biblical. So. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to reading his whole The Universe section. Um, although I have a friend who read this book, and he read that guy's book called The Evangelical Universalist. And he's like, in this book, he has limited space, so he doesn't really right. build the argument as strong as he does in the universal, in the Evangelical Universalist. And he said, honestly, he really builds a good case. And even Preston Sprinkle, who's the editor, said that that's a good... But he said it didn't convince me. He said, but it's a good argument, and it's a compelling compelling book, um, <clears throat> argument toward universalism. So I'm keeping that in mind, like that this, this argument may be slightly anemic because it had to be condensed, but that he might have some legitimate points. And I'm excited to see kind of the purgatory take as well. Like what exactly does that entail? How's, how does that function to him? So I'm excited for that as well. Is a guy writing about the purgatory a Roman Catholic? I don't think so because I thought these were all uh, evangelical guys. Because uh, if so, you know, I'm not too excited about reading about magisterial law and moral law and all that jazz. But <laughs> but I mean, I, I am interested to read his case. I don't know if it says in the book if he's where you get his PhD from or THD or whatever. Does it say that? Uh, it should maybe in the beginning or at the very end of the book where all the names are listed. Yeah, I don't, I'm looking for like an about the author section. I don't see one. I think he is Protestant because he starts off 
by saying, <clears throat> There are reasons to believe that later generations of Protestants have at least begun to reconsider what they threw out when they rejected the doctrine of purgatory, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. For instance, the very fact that the 1992 Four Views of Hell volume includes a chapter on the purgatorial view by Roman Catholic theologian Zachary Hayes suggests that... Uh, Yes, he's a Protestant philosopher, is how he refers to himself here. I think uh, that's a convincing argument. I still want to try to stay open-minded and see what purgatory is, because I think I may have said this last time, I do like the idea of God introducing himself to people in a way that they didn't get in their lifetime. Like that that example of like a 16-year-old kid who was abused by his pastor, didn't have a father type of thing. Why would anyone logically expect him to become a Christian? I mean, and that's why, like, you know, biblically it's like, well, yeah, you know, there's no logic in you becoming a Christian except by the creative power of the gospel proclaimed, the Holy Spirit working in your heart to encounter Jesus through the spoken word and believe. Then you work through that as he transforms your life in the process of sanctification. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, logically, no one would, you know, believe in Jesus. And, you know, that's my reformedness coming out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding the work of sin and how that hampers our rational faculties to, of course, mm. accept the greatest news of all time. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah. that I guess that's where I struggle. Um, just, like, it's honestly more with that type of, Example than with like the Africans who have never heard of him. Um, where was it? It was, I think it was in Rob Bell's book where he was talking about like when, when missionaries go to tribal people, sometimes they're like, Oh, Jesus is the one that we have been telling stories about for generations. You know, they just didn't know his name, that type of thing. It's like, okay. So does that mean that they were saved? Like the Romans one creation told them that there was this God and if they realize that Jesus was the very God they were referring to all that time, they acknowledge that. Does that mean like their great, great grandparents were also saved because they were acknowledging the same God. They just didn't know the name Yeshua, you know, like, right. and for me, you know, how I answer that question is I go, I'm hopeful, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know what scripture has said and what I've been given. And I know that that's the message I need to proclaim that I have a responsibility and if God chooses to work in ways that go beyond my understanding, because, I mean, Scripture isn't exhaustive on who God is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, uh, but not necessarily all the answers in the world about how he acts in the world. Right. Um, yeah. And so, like, yeah, I mean, sure. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to, you know. Yeah, that's a great way to put no, it. But it's just like, I know what I've been given. I know what I've, you know, read and I can trace my tradition, you know, faith all the way to, like, Acts, but how God is, you know, I mean, even Paul in Acts, he's like, you know, God is not far from every one of you. Um, and yeah. He, and he says, like, the unknown God which you worship, I now proclaim to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so, and, and that's in his conversation on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Yeah, but to the then, Greeks. But, yeah, but then when he preaches the gospel, it's, foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block for the Gentiles. So now that he has his message and he's proclaiming it, you, know, you can go to those tribal people and maybe there's some tribal people who are like, that's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. <laughs> why, would, why would we worship a God who died? No, we worship gods who fight and kill people. Mm-hmm. That's stupid. Yeah. And other people are like, like you said, 
hey, that's the that's the story you've been telling for generations. Hmm. It's like, well, maybe there's something there. Yeah, I don't know, but let's all get you Bibles in your language and we can read it and discuss it. Yeah, that's one one of my favorite lines from Love Wins was when he said. Like the people who are constantly obsessed with who's in and who's out and who's going to heaven and who's going to hell don't throw very good parties. <laughs> I was I like, love that. yeah, because, and I think that goes back to the whole idea of why Robin seems to be the nicest guy out of all of them, <laughs> because like he doesn't have to be as concerned with who's in and who's out. And to be honest, no Christian really does. If we live as if like, we just need to be Jesus to everybody with skin on. Um, like Ephesians 2, it is in Jesus' body that he's divided, that he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. And so if we are secure in our identity in Christ, then how we treat you know, black people, white people, gay people, straight people. Exactly. It, yeah. it doesn't, you know, it's like, yeah, there's ethical standards, but it's like we don't have to be threatened by anybody. We invite them into the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah. Say, hey, we're going to throw a really good party for you. <laughs> yeah. And so all the angels, when they rejoice that there's one sinner who has come to know the Lord rather than the 99 righteous people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because to be honest, there's a lot of people who would have this conversation and would be like, ah, I don't know if they would actually be considered Christians. You know, about anybody. And it's like, why do, Why are you trying to be the one who decides that? And I just think that that misses the entire point. Because, like, yeah. whether or not someone's a Christian, I am called to love them, you know? Um, yeah, and disciple them, teach them the word. Yeah. Uh, and that's, like, I don't know, maybe you're not living very Christianly, but maybe through cultivation and, you know, watering. God will give growth. And maybe yeah. my discipleship is watering for you, and I have a responsibility to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a part of my congregation, you know, or you know, even if you're not, and we have a relationship, it's like let's let's explore this together. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think about like, I mean, this is way kind of off topic from the the whole book, but like, some of the meaner people I've known in my life were Christians. And that's not to say that all atheists are super nice and all Christians are super mean. But just like, if you're a Christian and you're not a nice person, you're just not doing it right. Like, if you're like, you know what I mean? Like, in any way, for instance, I wrote an article a while back about how I had dinner with uh, this gay couple that I'm friends with. And they're hardcore atheists and they know I'm a Christian and they also know that I don't approve, that I don't think homosexuality is natural. That's the language I use. Um, I don't think it's natural. And they know that. But they make fun of me for being a Christian. I make fun of them for being gay. And we just have a really great dinner, you know? And I think that there's something beautiful in that where um, it's not like I'm hiding my beliefs. I'm not shy about it. But I'm also not going to not have a good dinner with them because they're gay. You know, and some people fought back and they're like, how will those people ever be saved if you're not sharing the gospel with them? And I'm like, how could I ever share the gospel with them if I don't first love them or have dinner with them? You know what I mean? Or respect their dignity as being made in the image of God, even if it is completely twisted. I mean... Like, who did Jesus eat with? Prostitutes. Sinners. You know? That's a pretty broad category. And yet, that's the language that Mark uses eating with the sinners and tax collectors, literally the enemies of the Jewish people working for Rome. So yeah. if Jesus it, can eat with those people, I can eat with a gay couple and 
not feel convicted about it. Yeah, or feel, like, pressure to, like, save souls. It's like, mm-hmm. look, we are, you know, called to be salt and light to the world. And, yeah, we proclaim, you know, the gospel message, but we can also enact the gospel as well. I mean, I think what St. Francis of Assisi is, like, bunk, you know, it's like, hey, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. It's yeah. Like, no, you, you have to use words, but... There is, you know, an aspect of like where Paul says, "Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ." About how we act in the world, and the things that we do, and the rituals that we participate in, are gospel proclaiming in themselves. Like the Lord's Supper, when we take and eat of it, we proclaim His death until He comes. Mm-hmm. Just by eating some bread and drinking wine, we're proclaiming the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think people have very—I uh, like the word you use—myopic understanding of certain practices that have been done um, but if we become more storied then we become more comfortable with the scripts that we've been given as Christians mm-hmm. um, and the roles that we have to be that we don't have to be God but we can just be an agent right and the freedom of being finite instead of trying to do God's work we become participants I think mm-hmm. that's really great yeah I think it was Billy Graham who said like it's God's jo- job to judge yeah. people Jesus. It's posted on the wall of the church every time I walk into my office. Is it? How's it go again? Man, I've seen it a billion times, but I couldn't tell you. It's one of those <laughs> things that just faces in the background, you know? I think it's like, it's God's job to judge, Jesus' job to it's something. Jesus' job to convict. And then my job I, to love. Right. And I think that's that's like very simple, but very true. And Christians who spend too much time with their head in the theological clouds forget that and then forget to love people. <laughs> and I think that that's a, that's a tendency, which is why I, I, I have really no problem being harsh on fellow Christians or especially church leaders and theologians. Anyone outside of that category, I don't try to judge or control or convict or anything, you know, but yeah. yeah. Because but. I mean, I think it says, uh, right. And, and it's either Hebrews or James, one of those general epistles where it's like teachers will be judged more harshly. Yeah, James like, 3, I think. Yep, yep, there it is. Yep. I remember reading it recently, so it must be James. But um, so, like, yeah, like I have responsibility not only in my teaching, but to live out what I preach. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm not a very good teacher. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah, and, and that's exactly why when I see church pastors who are leading people astray or distracting them by wearing $5,000 sneakers. I'm like, bro, you are missing it. You like, how many people have you driven away because of how you dress? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know if you saw my blog post like last week, I think it was like, I'm going to try to wear the same thing every day as much as I can. Like my white chucks, my white t-shirt and my black jeans. I'm like, that's all I need. (laughs) And if I can wear the same thing every day, it like is a call towards simplicity and reducing stress in my life. And I read the blog post about it, but that's something I'm trying out. So now I've, uh, for the past maybe four, three or four years, <coughs> all my clothes, except for a handful of gifts, um, are all neutral. So this shirt, neutral color, I have gray, burgundy, you know, just different, you know, colors, but they're all more a neutral tone. Just mm-hmm. wear a neutral shirt. I have a gray sweatshirt that way every day with jeans, neutral shoes. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I'm like, 
I don't need to try to proclaim anything by what I'm wearing, you know. And I have a shirt that says King of the Dad jokes that I got. For <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You know, some, some other things and stuff, like some goofy stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, I don't need, you know, a shirt that says Calvin Klein or, you know, mm-hmm. Ralph Lauren. Or yeah. Whatever. I don't want to be a capitalist billboard. Yeah. yeah like free advertisement <laughs> for buying a $200 shirt. Like, that's right. just. And the fact that like, pastors wear that on the on the stage is next level. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least if you're going to wear something nice for the occasion, don't have the brand on the outside, like, as much as you can help it, please. Well, the problem is that, the like, the ones in that Instagram account are specifically wearing, like, off-white pants, which are, like, $1,200 or, like, because a lot of them are in big cities where people recognize that brand – but then, and they're like, we're just dressing like the people dress. I'm like, most of the people who go to church are not wearing $1,200 pants. You know what I mean? Like, you can afford that because you're a millionaire, book sales, whatever, dude. But, like, that's not what I'm about. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have no problem calling out people like that. But the rest of the world, I have more grace for. Yeah, because, yeah. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. Yeah. But anyway, I've appreciated our uh, conversation tonight. It's been really good, even though it has multiple avenues. I think we hit on the chapter real well and discussed the strengths and where we're leaning and our excitements to continue engaging with the book. It's sad that the rest of the arena of dialogue are missing out on this wonderful blessing of a conversation. <laughs> I know. It'd be fun to have a couple more voices in it, but... Nobody else wanted to join in. It's their loss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, tomorrow I have the funeral, so that'll be really interesting. Yeah, if, uh, if, if I remember, you know, uh, remember you in my prayers, and hopefully that goes well. You know, doing your first funeral is kind of nerve-wracking. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm sure that you'll do well, so. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. But I'll go... I'm going to go get my suit ready for that. And I'll, but hope you have a good rest of your night. And we'll yeah. chat soon about the next chapters. Yeah, probably either um, maybe if not next week in two weeks. Uh, this week was kind of an anomaly. I normally preach two sermons, uh, two different sermons. So I have to write those. But uh, this week I only had to do one. So Oh, nice. But next week it's back to normal. So probably in two weeks I think would be a good time to pick up. And Fridays work good too. So. Perfect. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks for thanks for spending your time chatting, and I'll talk to you later. Yeah. Peace. Right. Bye, Garrett. Bye, Ethan.